come, whether you have much faith or little, have tried to follow or are afraid you failed. Come because it is his will that those who want to meet him might meet him here. Welcome to From the Narthex, a podcast about faith, life, and Anglicanism. This is your host, Ryan. And today on the pod, we have a guest from south of the border, Mr. Ben Crosby. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Hey, thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here. So, Ben, uh, I I would call you a friend. My wife would not count uh, the... <laughs> the tentative relationship that we have as one of friendship yet, but I'm pretty generous with that term. So I'll call you a friend. We've met and interacted over Twitter for probably the last year and a half. Mm -hmm. And um, you are an ordinant in the Episcopal Church. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. Yes. I will actually be ordained a deacon this Saturday. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So we're doing a little mini series here with a few uh, Anglican ordinands and postulants who are very close to their ordination date, um, mm. just to kind of get a sense of, uh, you know, where you are on the cusp of kind of jumping into yeah, a more official uh, position of ministry, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the way we like to start all of these podcasts is by just throwing out this big question of what does faith mean to you? Mm. It's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think for me, it really comes down in the end to, to trust, to this sort of question of, of um, what or really who I am sort of staking my, my life upon and, um, and so who it is that I'm sort of trusting enough to, uh, to stake my life on. Um, and then for me, that of course is Jesus. Right. So, uh, so faith as this thing that, um, there's, so there's a personal dynamic to it. That's right. Um, it's a, a specific trust in a person. Um, mm-hmm. And what, I guess, what kind of characterizes that trust for you? Or, or what, why has Jesus proven trustworthy, I, maybe is a better question. No, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a great question, especially for, for those of us, all of us really, who are, are, keenly aware that Jesus isn't the only person or thing in whom one could choose to to put one's trust. I mean, I think for me, you know, it's 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 a number of things. I mean, I think there's sort of a set of philosophical and, and historical arguments about about the existence of God, about the reliability of of the scripture's testimony to Jesus that are are of course important. Um, but I think for me, the sort of, the thing that has led me to take those arguments and to take that history seriously um, has, has really probably been the ways that, that others in my life have, have shown Christ to me. Um, you know, I think I, I grew up uh, Lutheran and, and still identify with Lutheranism in, in many ways and really sort of core, I think, to, to that particular articulation of, of Christianity. Um, is the the these trinal assertion of and the experience of and the experience of the reception of, of absolutely undeserved grace? Um, and I think you know I can think of a a few moments in my life that that really come to mind where where friends or family members or loved ones have have sort of taken me um, at at my lowest at the moments that I sort of felt that I was the the worst the most unworthy of of love or or care or esteem and then sort of showered grace upon me and and I I 
do believe that uh, that in that, I mean, certainly some of the people that, that that have done that for me, that have been that for me, were motivated by by explicitly Christian commitments. But even those that weren't, I think, in them, I I've experienced Christ and Christ's love for me. Right. Yeah. That I I was interested. I've seen you talk about your Lutheran upbringing before. Where where is home for you originally? Yeah, so I grew up um, in the, the Chicago area, um, so in the sort of you know, Midwestern United States. Right, and th that's, there are more kind of Lutherans in the Midwest, if I'm remembering right. my geography right, right. No, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's you know, unsurprisingly right, it's, it's basically where the, the Germans, or at least some of the Germans and the Scandinavians settled. And so, you know, it's, it's Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, the Dakotas, that sort of upper Midwest area. Sure. Yeah. So what, uh, what kind of brand of Lutheranism, I suppose, did you, did you grow up in? What was the church called that you went to? Yeah. So I grew up at Our Savior Lutheran Church, Carroll Stream, Illinois. Um, look it up. It's still there. Um, and it is um, uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Um, so that is, oh gosh, I always get my, my Canadian Lutheran churches confused, but it's not, it's sort of, the equivalent is not the ELCIC. It's, it's the other right. one. Right. Yeah. Lutheran Church of uh, Canada. Is that, is that right? Is that what it's that, called? That might be true. I, okay. you, to be honest with you, I don't know much about the Lutheran Church. We have a full uh, uh, communion agreement with the, uh, I think the Evangelical Lutheran Church, but uh, uh, they, they're just in this part of Canada, there's not a lot of Lutherans around. Mm. So mm -hmm. yeah, my, my personal experience with that tradition is fairly minimal <laughs> Fair enough, but fair but enough. lcms is a bit more of a conservative uh that's right. tradition right yeah that's right yep okay and and had that been your family's kind of long-standing tradition then more or less yeah um certainly sort of german-speaking protestant there's a swiss side of the family that was that was swiss reformed um but yes kind of with a few exceptions sort of German heritage magisterial Protestant is, is, is pretty much what we've been. Okay, so how did you, as a kind of a German Protestant, how did you kind of swing your way into Anglicanism? Yeah, I mean, it happened as uh, I suppose religious changes often do. I mean, when I left home to, to do my undergraduate studies, um, which I actually did out, out here on the East Coast, um, here at Yale, where I also went to uh, to divinity school, um, where I just graduated from divinity school, in fact. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Still getting used to saying that, but I am, you know, a graduate. Um, yeah. Yeah. What? Oh, go ahead. It's, it's always like, it takes a while for the anxiety of due dates to go away. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> well, and as, as I think you know, I'm, I'm, you know, launching right into another academic program. So, you know, the due dates will, will continue world without end. Amen. <laughs> um, but... Anyway, yes, so I um, came to undergrad, sort of found uh, an initial sort of spiritual home um, in the, the, the ELCA, the more mainline sort of United States Lutheran denomination in their campus ministry, but also discovered Anglicanism for the first time. I mean, I had, you know, we're called Episcopalians down, down here, or, you know, most of us are. It's, it's complicated. We can get into yeah. it. Yeah. But um, uh, yes, so there's a... There's a beautiful, quite quite high church, sort of more and more kind of Anglo-Catholic um, Episcopal parish, sort of right off the college campus, and they do a 
a solemn sung Compline, which is the, the night prayer service every, every Sunday night. And so, you know, you, you go in and it's uh, this, this beautiful 19th century neo-Gothic sanctuary lit only by candles, incense floating up the, the you know, choir and the choir loft chanting the service. And I just, I thought it was amazing, you know, yeah. um, like nothing I'd experienced. And I, I mean, to be clear, my, my attraction was not only aesthetic. I mean, I think for me, uh, the, the thing that has, has brought me here and kept me here really, I think, has a lot to do with um, the spirituality of the, the Book of Common Prayer, um, the, uh, the sort of orienting one's life around both kind of Sunday worship in church um, with, with the Eucharist, um, but also, you know, the, the rhythm of, of the daily office um, is something that has been really precious to me and something that as a, as a college student really kind of jump-started my prayer life after a couple of years of, of not really praying outside of Sunday worship, um, you know, having, having something objective and given to me and, and collective to kind of use to, to scaffold um, really my, my whole day around um, has changed my life, I think, to be honest. Yeah. And so, yes, I mean, I, you know, I remain, um, you know, theologically, I, I certainly remain um, you know, Protestant, broadly, broadly speaking. Um, but I think this, this particular, yeah, prayer book spirituality that I found in Anglicanism is, is something that has been, um, yeah, that, that has been tremendously helpful to me and, and is what's brought me here. So, so the Lutherans also have a prayer book of sorts. No, they do, they do. Um, yes. The how, how have you found that different? Or, or was it not part of, really part of your spirituality before? No, no, not at all. I mean, I think it's, you know, you, we, we had Sunday worship, which was, I mean, the church that I went to growing up um, was sort of caught in the, in the middle of, I mean, this is the moment of the, the so-called worship wars in, in a lot of, at least, at least it's a, a, a yeah, term yeah. we have down here, right, about the sort of contemporary music versus sort of traditional liturgy that, that comes up. And we were pretty middle of the road on that. We'd have, you know, some services that were, that were, you sort of used the, the kind of traditional Lutheran liturgy and, and some services that were more kind of contemporary praise and worship um, services um, that, that sort of looked a lot more like what you might find in a, in a non-denominational or, or whatever church. Um, but yes, I mean, I think it's certainly true that it's, it's there in Lutheranism, but it has nowhere near the, uh, the sort of status or kind of quasi-normative um, sort of role in, in anchoring a, a collective spirituality that, that one finds um, in, in Anglicanism. The, the notion that your, your prayer book or hymnal is, is something that you'd be engaging with daily, not just at sort of Sunday worship is, it, it's there. And then I certainly know people that engage with it, but it's, it's not terribly common. Right, right. So it's not a part, as big of a part of kind of everyday spirituality as- That's right. As, like That's the right. daily office has been, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Interesting. So one of the things that um, I think one of the first times I interacted with you was around um, there was a, a kind of a series in Earth and Altar around Anglican mm -hmm. identity. Mm -hmm. And you were really kind of trying to, I think, wrestle with the legacy of things like the 39 articles and, and different these kind of confessional things. And I, and I just right. wonder if you've reflected at all about kind of Lutheranism is a more of a confessional tradition. Mm -hmm. And it, has that been kind of part of your interest in, in looking for that in Anglicanism or, or no, what is kind of your interest there? 
Yeah, I think it. I think it probably has been. I mean, you know, sort of via biographically, um, and I think mostly, you know, but a lot of my interest in it, I think, stems from, uh, yeah, studying sort of Anglican history and especially kind of pre nineteenth century Anglican history and sort of seeing, you know, just what a massive role these formularies is what they're often called together the the sort of the sixteen sixty two prayer book, the Articles of Religion, the the ordinal used to, to ordain clergy. And in, in some cases, this, this book of sermons called the, the book of homilies as well. Um, just seeing that it, it actually played, you know, together, they played very much, I would argue, at least, um, you know, a, a sort of confessional or quasi-confessional role in, um, in early Anglicanism um, and sort of wondering what happened and, and you know, what might have been lost along with what has perhaps been gained in this kind of process of deconfessionalization that especially in the 20th century has, has pretty much been the story, I think of, or one of the stories I should say of, of uh, the history of Anglican theology. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I spent a bit of time, um, well, I'm married to a Mennonite and I spent a bit, mm. a bit of time in the Mennonite church and, and there was some talk about how the Mennonites kind of got caught up in the the move to confessionalization, but it was not very successful. They only mm-hmm. ever really had regional ones. Hmm. And um, they have these kind of uh, statements of faith in Mennonite perspective kind of thing today. But they there's been a lot of debate now around like, what are these documents? What what yeah. do they do for us? Um, and there's kind of different different accounts of that. And so it's just kind of been interesting to see how that is playing out, I think, in a lot of really diverse traditions today. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and I think it's, I mean, right. I mean, one of the questions that that confessions are perhaps one answer, although not the only answer to, is, you know, what does it actually mean to be X, where X can be Anglican or sort of Mennonite or whatever. And I think, you know, one of one of the challenges that we have found in the in the Episcopal Church um, is, at least in, in my reading, um, an account of Episcopal identity, which sort of is, is kind of all in on polity, that we are, you know, that we are Episcopalians um, because we may not believe the same things, we may not really even worship the same way anymore, but like, we're in the same ecclesiastical structure um, together. We bishops, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and I mean, I think, you know, um, I worry that that is a sort of thin account um, that that sort of doesn't necessarily um, offer whether it's sort of for for forming uh, priests to, or other clergy to to go out and serve, or whether it's um, sort of for for educating um, and, and and training up lay people um, in the faith. If that if that sort of gives us enough of a center um, to to use, yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think the whole of the Anglican communion is going to have to continue wrestling with this for several generations that's, to come. That's, but that's, Assuming we all hold together in some form or another. Yes, yeah, that's, that's, that's right. right. <laughs> um, so you, you find yourself in New Haven and right. at this... Uh, at this wonderful little parish that has a sung Compline, and that's my favorite service in the Book of Common mm. Prayer. I, it's like Such it's hands down the best thing that Anglicans have. We should do it more. Um, <laughs> but uh, how did you get from kind of going to this beautiful evening service to now being on the cusp of <laughs> taking on holy orders? Uh, that yeah. doesn't just happen, right? 
No, it certainly doesn't. I mean, the truth is, um, you know, relatively early on in my time in undergrad, I sort of became seriously discerning, I uh, began seriously discerning a, a called ordained ministry of some sort. It just sort of wasn't immediately clear what, what ecclesial location it would be in, whether it would be in the Lutheran church or, or the Anglican. Um, I mean, I didn't come to undergrad thinking that I was going to be a, a minister. That was, that was sort of not the plan. It was, you know, nonprofit work, sort of international NGO, maybe, maybe politics. That was, that was sort of the universe of things I was thinking yeah. about. Um, Is that what you studied too then? No, I, I, I didn't actually. I ended up, um, so I did end up um, in, in religious studies as an, as an okay. undergrad, almost by accident. I mean, this is the sort of, it's, it's funny how, how God works. Um, you know, my, uh, my, my bishop likes to say when he's sort of addressing um, those relatively early in the ordination processes sort of beginning it, who are being asked to, um, as part of their application to postulancy, put together these, these spiritual autobiographies. He likes to say, you know, there are sort of two sorts of call stories that he typically sees. The, uh, the road to Damascus story, where it is, you know, <laughs> where you are struck off that horse. Um, you are, uh, you know, God sort of acts in your life in this kind of overwhelming way to, to sort of turn things around. Or he says, there's also these, these road to Emmaus stories that are a lot more gradual, a lot less dramatic that you kind of look back at the end and say, oh, like my heart was burning within me here and I didn't realize it at the time, but like, it's because God was leading me somewhere. And mine is definitely um, the, the latter story. You know, I, I sort of, yes, found myself in religious studies because it was a particular set of kind of theoretical approaches to intellectual history that I found interesting, but, but not because I was going to study theology. Absolutely not. And, you know, <laughs> found myself, uh, found myself without ever quite realizing it, sort of spending a lot of my, you know, not only, not only my spiritual life, but a lot of my sort of social life, you know, began to revolve around the, the church, got myself, uh, I mean, you, you know how it is in, in a lot of our, our congregations, you know, if you're, uh, you know, under under 40 and and start showing up consistently, people are, are very ready to, to put you into leadership positions. And and for some people that may not in fact be a, a good or healthy thing, but you know, but, but for me it was, I think for me, I, uh, yeah, had had some sort of aptitudes recognized by, by some of the pastors and lay leaders around me. And, you know, relatively early on began, began wondering about, about the possibility of ordained ministry. Um, but I, I also felt, I mean, one of the things I really wrestled with about undergrad felt this real pull to to doing justice work um, was was quite involved in the the campus left especially doing labor solidarity stuff as an undergrad and so when I finished actually uh, especially since um, you know this this question of ecclesial identity was was still not really settled for me and I decided to to put the ministry thing on, on hold for a little bit and I was a, a union organizer up in Boston Massachusetts for uh, for a couple of years. And then uh, once, I, once I left that, went and worked just as a, as a parish administrator for a, a church downtown. Um, yes, and then sort of eventually during that time, over the course of that time in Boston, you know, discerned that, uh, that the Episcopal Church was, was probably the home that, that, that made the most sense. So I'll, I'll never forget, um, you know, I was, I was having this conversation with, uh, with this this priest mentor of mine and and you know look I'm I'm you know I'm I'm an anxious person uh, clinically speaking I'm an anxious person um, big decisions I you know tend to uh, 
wrestle with, agonize over, whatever. So I was, I was, you know, un unburdening my heart to this guy, and I had my my pros and cons list, and was getting very emotional. And there was just a lot, and he just sort of looks at me and says, "You know, Ben, I, I really don't think Jesus cares that much whether you're a Lutheran or an Episcopalian." <laughs> Amen. You know, he's like, "Well, you know, there there'll be differences. Your formation will look different. Your ministry will look different, but you can." you know, serve God and serve God's people, you know, very well in, in sort of either ecclesial body. And, and that um, really sort of gave me the permission to, uh, you know, ratchet back the, ratchet down the importance a little bit and say, oh, well, you know, my spiritual life is centered around the Book of Common Prayer. Um, I've, I've only really attended Episcopal services in the last uh, year and a half. Um, huh, maybe, maybe God actually is, is calling me to, uh, to serve in this particular setting, and so yeah, I, I entered the entered the discernment process in in the diocese of Massachusetts. Um, you know, wended my way through the application, got the approval to go to seminary, went to seminary, graduated from seminary, and and here I am. Uh, so the your postulancy process, what does that what does that kind of look like uh, in the states? Is it a fairly long, drawn out thing, or typically yes? Um, I yeah. think mine will have. Uh, yeah, mine has been about, I don't know, five or six years now, I think. Okay. Um, and that's a relatively short one. Like there were no hiccups. I mean, I should say, first of all, one one caveat here. I don't know uh, if this is also the case in Canada, but while there are some right sort of canonical requirements set by the national church for what the process looks like, individual bishops actually have a, a lot of leeway to sort of run the processes as they as they choose. So yeah. um so I can't say that my experience was the sort of standard, you know, Episcopal experience. It, it was the Massachusetts one. Um, and so for, oh, okay. for us, what it looked like, you know, the, the model is really, you know, there's this sort of strong sense that there have got to be, you know, there are sort of three yeses involved in a, in a call, you know, from, from God, from the person being called and from their, their church context. And so, and, and which is not that unusual an idea of a, I suppose, but what it looks like for us is things really start with the, the local parish. Um, if you are interested in, in exploring ordination, um, you, know, you, you talk to your priest or perhaps your, your priest or a, or a lay leader at the church sort of sees some gift or aptitude in you and, and begins a conversation with you about it. Um, and then if you, you know, think it's, it's serious and think it's something that you would like to, to explore, um, you constitute a parish discernment committee which will be a couple of people um, in, in, your, in your parish um, selected to meet with you regularly, pray with you regularly, and, and sort of have a set of conversations with you about um, to, to explore this call with you. I mean, and something actually that some, my church did not, but that some congregations in our diocese are, are start moving towards doing, which I think is quite interesting, is instead of... Um, just sort of constituting these these discernment committees for people discerning a call to to holy orders they sort of have them more as kind of permanent sort of standing committees and and, and anyone who is discerning a, a major life transition or, or sort of a particular call from god is is sort of invited to meet with people to to work that out to you know to kind of stress oh, okay. the discernment so for more something just... that's important for clergy yeah, yeah, that's great. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Which, yeah, no, I love. I think I think is really good. Um, but 
but my church, you know, was, was kind of a very sort of small, scrappy place that, that didn't have the resources to do that. So we, we constituted something special for me. And we met for a while uh, to do that. And then ultimately, um, that committee, you know, writes up a report, which goes to the, the vestry, right, the, the sort of governing body of the local congregation. Um, they have to vote me up. Um, and then, and the, you know, sponsoring priest has to sort of write a letter. And then there's a that, along with some other application materials, gets sent up to the diocese, and then you come on for a set of interviews, um, and then you know if, if you're approved at that point, you, you become a postulant in the okay. you know, sort of in the process, and then you're you're typically, and then at that's the point where if you're doing the sort of quote unquote traditional model where you sort of go to seminary, um, yeah. which is indeed what what I did, um, and, then, and do they know, do they help you out paying for that? Um, a little bit. Yeah. That's good. Yes. No, we got a, I got a, uh, yes. Um, for us, and I, I don't know, um, this is another thing where I don't know if this is the case in, in Canada. I think this is true across the board. Well, there might be a few very wealthy dioceses who can uh, pay all the way through for their students. Sort of aid is mostly handled at the seminary level. Um, and actually oh, okay. a, a good number of our seminaries, uh, our sort of specifically Episcopal seminaries are, either tuition-free or tuition-free plus a stipend. Um, and so then any sort of diocesan support can, you know, help with extra living expenses, books, that that sort right, of thing. Right, right. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, I honestly have no idea how things normally go here because uh, my my process, I've done it all wrong and um, <laughs> the most expensive backwards way possible. So yeah, I don't know what normal, what, what the normal route looks like in Canada. I, I imagine it's... Um, cheaper than what I did, but yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, okay. I wanted to back up a little bit. You <laughs> mentioned working for the union uh, right. and doing some labor organizing in between uh, kind of your first and your second degree. Um, and I just wonder like how you've thought about kind of the practice of organizing and how that relates to, to church work. Yeah, no, Great question. I mean, something that uh, that I've um, thought about a fair bit and, and sort of written about a little bit as well is I, I think, without wanting to suggest that uh, the church can simply sort of import everything about contemporary organizing culture wholesale, you know, throw a little holy water over it and, and then sort of call it good. Um, I do think that I learned more about how to build um, sort of thick communities of, of kind of mutual care and accountability from, from the labor world than I did from the church, even though um, at least sort of in my understanding of the church, that's very much what the church is supposed to be, uh, be about and, and be doing. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think the sort of careful attention to the to the other in all their particularity that sort of being a good organizer um, requires the kind of ability to um, combine that careful attention with um, you know sort of a fundamentally kind of persuasive work of, of sort of getting people excited about a, a shared vision of what our life together might might look like figuring out how to to hold each other accountable to like fight for that vision, even when it's hard and unpleasant and, and isn't, right. you know, um, isn't the sort of normal thing to do. Um, yeah, I mean, I think those are, those are sort of all things I learned, I learned how to do from, 
from the union. Um, and so in, in that sense, I think um, there are certainly, certainly some skills from that work that I, I hope will, um, will influence my, my ministry for the better. Yeah, I, I wonder, like I know both unions and the church are in uh, pretty rough shape in America <laughs> right now. And, and I just wonder if, if in your experience, which have you found easier to convince people to sign on to? Yeah. Because um, <laughs> both are, are not super attractive to a no, lot of folks right no. now. I mean, I, I, I you know, love my, uh, my struggling and perhaps dying institutions, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... Honestly, the the union, um, I think, you know, it's uh, the, yes, I think that that good union organizers have like figured out how to sort of connect the particular variety of good news that, that they are bringing to the sort of needs and aspirations of the people to whom they're speaking in a way that I think some Christians are, are quite good at, but, um, but Episcopalians, I think, are, are by and large not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I suppose maybe with, uh, uh, with the union, there's a more proximate uh, enemy a lot of the time, too. That is certainly true. Yeah. That is certainly <laughs> which, true. which helps. Which yeah. it, it does. It does. Yes. <laughs> so you're going to be ordained this coming Saturday. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Uh, is it is that a particular feast day? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, no. okay. <laughs> I'm sure we're celebrating somebody, but no, it's um, <laughs> we just we typically do. Yeah, we just we uh, my diocese typically just does um, the diaconal ordination, so we ordained a deacon um, on like the first Saturday in June, I think. Oh, okay. And, and <laughs> will that be, will there be a group of you or is it? There or will, you there'll, the, be, there'll yeah. be seven of us. Oh, wow. That's a, that's yeah, a big. No, we're, I mean, we're a big diocese and we ordain a lot of people. That's great. Um, now, uh, I know a lot of places around the communion, you got to generally spend about a year as a deacon before they priest you. Is that right. true in your case as well? Yes, I, I, Oh goodness! Don't don't tell my bishop this. I don't remember exactly what the canonical requirements are, but yes, it's it's about uh, six to nine months is typically how long it is between um, in our diocese. Okay, but you're going to be moving up here to Canada sometime this That's summer. That's correct. That's so. Correct. What what does that do to this process for you, or does it do anything? Yeah. So I actually just had a conversation with with my uh, my bishop about this, um, and assuming that. The Bishop of Montreal um, does not think differently. Um, I think the the sort of plan will likely be that I will you know, serve as a, as a deacon in a so I'll be um, beginning a PhD at, at McGill in the fall. So I'll be in Montreal. Um, so I will serve as a deacon um, in some Anglican church somewhere in the Montreal area, um, sort of TB TBD there, and then I'll. Uh, and then I will actually come back to Massachusetts in early 2022 to be to be ordained priest. Okay, um, and like then I'll, and then back up to Montreal to sort of serve as a to serve as a priest. But yes, I think most likely, again, assuming that that the Bishop of Montreal does not want to do it otherwise, and I think typically for these sort of relatively um, time limited sorts of, of moves where, you know, unless sort of God calls me, otherwise I, I don't, you know, necessarily plan on, on being in Montreal past, past the PhD, uh, you know, I'm not, not necessarily opposed to it, but, but, you know, right. it's, it's sort of not the plan. Um, 
that typically you'll you'll maintain what's what's called your your canonical residence, um, sort of in in your kind of sending diocese. And so my I will still be you know canonically resident in Massachusetts, but licensed to serve in the diocese of Montreal is uh, right. is the church speak for for I what think, I'll be doing. Um, I think that's often. I, I could be wrong about this, but I, I think a bishop here told me once that almost all of the Episcopalians who serve up here uh, maintain their, their residency at home. And then, right. yeah, um, even if they're up here for years and years and years, yeah. they're still technically part of, yeah. If, if you want a, a dirty little church secret, um, that is in no small part because our pension fund is more generous than the Canadian <laughs> fund. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, I think I think uh, it's it'll come as no surprise to anybody that the Episcopal Church is a lot wealthier than the Anglican Church of Canada. <laughs> yes. So, um, all right, Montreal, McGill. Why McGill? Why Montreal? Uh, and what are you going to be studying there? Yeah, so I am going to be working um, primarily with with Torrance Kirby, who is a um, scholar primarily of, of Richard Hooker, although sort of of the kind of English Reformation era more broadly. Um, and I mean, it's it's funny, right? When you're applying to PhD programs, you you have to send a, a fairly detailed proposal, but with the full knowledge that it may or may not have much of any relation to, to what you actually end up writing. Um, so what I've said I'm working on, and what I indeed intend right now to be working on, but um, have been encouraged to hold somewhat loosely, is um, uh, has to do with the question of the relationship of the Church of England to Protestant church bodies on the continent. And, and specifically, I'm interested in looking at how in the, um, the Elizabethan era in particular, um, sort of how key theologians of the Church of England um, configured their relationship to, let's say, the Lutheran and Reformed churches of the continent. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about them, and, and at least what I intend to argue is that, well, first of all, um, whether or not you consider yourself a Protestant, the, uh, the, the leaders of the Elizabethan Church of England thought they were Protestants. Um, sure. and, yeah. uh, and they articulated an account of Protestant identity that incorporated the, uh, both sort of the, themselves along with both the Lutherans and Reformed and did this at a time in which Kind of on the continent, the confessional lines between the Lutherans and Reforms are, are, are hardening. There's, you know, mutual sort of anathematization. Um, and so, you know, while, while they're saying, no, no, we're, we're not going to play together in any, in any way, shape, or form, you have sort of people over in England, you know, sort of taking those disagreements seriously and kind of engaging in the, the Lutheran Reform polemic, but, but doing so in the context of asserting this, um, this common uh, sort of Protestant ecclesial identity that, which of course they argue is, is not only Protestant, but is in fact the kind of truly Catholic um, expression of, of Christianity um, at, in, their, in their time. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's what I'm hoping to work on um, in terms of why McGill. Um, yeah, I mean, say very excited to, to work, with, work with Kirby. He's, uh, you know, definitely, um, one of the scholars who I think, you know, his, his interests sort of make him a, a really good fit for this project. And, you know, also let's, let's be honest, I, I got in and got enough funding to live on. So uh... yeah. follow, follow the money. That is, that is the key to a PhD success story. I think. Yep. Yeah. That's great. Well, uh, Canada is, is lucky to have you. Oh, um, 
I it would be interesting. I I will follow your your research with interest. Um, I've I'm kind of well. I I don't really my work doesn't really fit in any particular period. But uh, one of the I'm kind of interested in that period. I've been doing some reading around this character named Humphrey Gilbert, mm. uh, and he was given letters patent by by uh, Queen Elizabeth the first to. Um, take hold of all the lands around Norumbega, which of course doesn't exist. Mm. Um, mm. But he didn't make it. He only made it as far as Newfoundland. Okay. Uh, and it's interesting because this, it, in the 1580s or so, you, you already start to see the English Protestants starting to make different kinds of colonial arguments than doctrine of discovery. They're not really mm. appealing to that. And that's gonna, that matures into f- these full-blown Puritan rationales mm-hmm. for, for colonialism that are, that are based on scripture and not so much based on the doctrine of discovery. So yeah. I'm really interested in the period, but I, I don't have the kind of historical chops to really <laughs> do what you're doing. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I will follow your publications with interest. Um, as, as somebody who's about to kind of embark as a, uh, as a budding theologian, or would it be kind of a are you doing like a church history thing or you want yes. to do, be like a theologian or, or what do you want to brand yourself as, I guess? Yeah, so technically my, my PhD is in uh, ecclesiastical history, which sounds, uh, you know, delightfully <laughs> <Yeah>. 19th century <laughs> or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think definitely my, you know, my training, um, it's, it's essentially sort of historical theology, um, right? So it's it's right. sort of, you know, really kind of at the, at the nexus of, of both history and theology, where I'm not, you know, sort of just making kind of constructive claims in the way that a systematic theologian might, even though, you know, there might be some sort of floating around in the background um, of, of sort of the work I'm doing. Um, but then it's also a sort of mode of history that like, well, it sort of certainly will take question, the sorts of questions that, um, that social historians or cultural historians ask you know, seriously and then sort of incorporate that into the work I'm doing, you know, will be fundamentally intellectual history. Right. Of history of ideas. Cool. Um, so how do you, how do you feel this, uh, this way forward as a kind of a, as an academic priest? What, what kind of are you looking forward to in terms of your vocation? Uh, or do you have any kind of like, in an ideal world where bishops didn't tell you what to do and, and you could just kind of chart out your career path, where do you see kind of the, this vocation taking you? Yeah, I mean, at, at the risk of, you know, sounding like I'm just saying the thing that you're supposed to say, I'm, I'm genuinely feel very open to the, to the spirits leading. I mean, I, I feel like whatever I end up doing, I want it to, um, to incorporate both this sort of intellectual scholarly work, um, as well as the pastoral, homiletical, sort of sacramental, you know, functions of the of the priesthood. Um, but I could see that looking a lot of different ways. You know, I think I'd I'd be quite happy. You know, sort of primarily located in a in a parish, but doing work. Uh, but you know, sort of doing some other academic work. I'd be quite happy. Um, you know, sort of taking part in, in theological education, um, that sort of thing. I mean, I think, I think at this point, um, I would be, you know, the, the sort of aim would certainly be to be involved in, in theological formation, education, and specifically the formation of clergy in, in some yeah. way or another, but that could. That so could you'd love to teach it like specifically a seminary rather That's than right. a religious studies That's right. program? That's yeah. right. Yep. 
Yeah. Well, I, I hope that can become a reality. It might, uh, it might end up having to be in the parish. Um, we, we had a, a rather dismal report from the Canadian Theological Society about multiple uh, theological colleges and religious studies programs closing across Canada this year. So, uh, but the future might actually be back in the church in some respects. So grab that education while you can and, and <laughs> use right. it for the future. Well, uh, thanks, Ben. This has been really great chatting with you uh, this last bit here. Um, I just wanted to throw it open to you. Are you working on anything right now that you'd like to plug or are there any kind of uh, initiatives that you're a part of that you'd like to tell people about? Yeah, uh, thanks for thanks for offering that. Yeah, something actually that I've been, been working on for the last set of months that I've been uh, kind of really really excited about is is something called the the society of saint mary magdalene um and it, it sort of came out of a set of conversations um because <laughs> you know we all had really nothing to do the last couple months but you know tweet through a, a global pandemic um, <laughs> a set of conversations sort of recognizing that both specifically for for anglicans that while there are uh, a great number of devotional societies for those of a, a more sort of Anglo-Catholic bent. There's there's sort of not a whole lot there for, for those of us whose um, theological commitments sort of tend to be more Protestant and, and sort of conversations with folks in other kind of Protestant mainline denominations uh, for whom there just really isn't, isn't sort of much of anything in terms of kind of regular support and accountability in, um, in following Jesus. Um, and so, it is a, it's, it's for both um, lay people and, and clergy. Um, it is for both, um, you know, it is sort of for people of, of really any, any sort of ecclesial affiliation, um, although is, is I think broadly Protestant um, in, its, in its theological commitments. Um, and it's, it's based, it's based roughly actually on the, the model that, that Wesley um, used in, in, in sort of early Methodism where we've got these, uh, these regular collegia, they are called, that, that sort of meet about monthly and give people an opportunity to um, talk about, talk honestly and, and openly about, about their, their life with Christ, about the things that are going well, about the things that aren't going well. Um, and, you know, we, we sort of take as our, our mission uh, the, the evangelism, the pursuit of holiness and, and the renewal of the church um, and our sort of looking to provide opportunities for for fellowship education and and spiritual support to um to aid us in, in doing just that in our various ecclesial contexts so uh you can if, if that sounds at all interesting to you um you can go to to ssmarymagdalene.org um to, to learn more but that's i mean it's been something that's been incredibly helpful for me especially as i prepare to to leave seminary and realize that the sorts of kind of Christian community that I've I've been surrounded by the last set of years. Well, we're certainly not go away, but we'll be we'll be different um, when I am, yeah. you know, as it were, out in the world serving a parish and and wanting to find people to uh, to continue to to love me and support me and pray for me and hold me accountable in in seeking to uh, to grow more fully into the image of Christ. Yeah, that's great for for our listeners. Uh, if this sounds familiar. Uh, I think we had Chris Corbin on. Oh no way! Great. Yeah, and, and so he was he was telling us a bit about that as well. So um, that's that's two of our guests now that are associated with this group. So maybe uh, 
anybody out there listening, uh, this might be something that you'd be interested in, in checking out if you've enjoyed hearing from Ben and Chris in these, uh, in these episodes. And you know, as I, as I move up to Canada, where we're trying to get some Canadian chapters off the ground. So uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. Well, thank you so much, Ben. Uh, all the best in your, in your ordination this weekend. Well, you'll be in our prayers thank and, uh, and uh, welcome to Canada preemptively, I suppose. No, amazing. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please leave a review and rating on iTunes and tell your friends.